Take your Bibles, if you'll turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 5 and read to the end of the chapter these uh, 11 verses. Acts chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Read out the New King James Version, as is our custom. God's Word declares, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurius, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Well, we are going to go from the elevation of seven men and to the servanthood. And you might say, well, that's not being elevated. That's being lowered. Um, Not if you understand servanthood of the scriptures that we realize that servanthood is the highest calling of God. And God gives this instruction, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, what do you need to learn, according to the tune? You need to learn to be the servant of all. And so when we talk about elevating into in the church, it is not necessarily that others serve you, that's the way of men, but the way of God's uh, people is that as we are raised up, we serve more. That it is raising the uh, degree and the extent of our service, and we find that here seven men have been put forward to serve, Uh, and the ones that they were serving was the distribution of resources to the care of the widows in the community. These seven are described as ones who are of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. They would be set apart for the balance of their lives, for a ministry of service. Not what we would identify maybe as uh, spiritual service, and yet in God's eyes uh, there is no such thing as non-spiritual service. There's there's, There's no exception when it's done uh, and requires of us um, the Spirit's work. It requires God's wisdom to do that. And so these seven were set aside, and one of them uh, who is listed in, in um, the, as first on the list that we have and has been given the, 
the special designation in God's word as of the seven, he is a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Not that the others were lacking of that, but that he excelled in that. And we have many examples of that in scripture um, where certainly all within the group are godly men, but yet there is one that excels. Um, When we think of... uh, four guys in the book of Daniel, we know that one excelled. But they were all godly men and took great stands and served faithfully. Um, But Daniel excelled among even those four. We look at uh, seven or five men, sorry, when we get to uh, Acts uh, 13 and 14, and we're going to see that these are five men who are godly men gathered in prayer, desiring to serve the Lord, and, and God chose out two out of those five that excelled. And among them, Paul is one. And so we find here that out of these seven godly men, one excelled. That a designation was given to him that he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And we want to understand that because that faith and that spirit power within him is going to be tested. And the demonstration of it is going to be powerful and evident. And we might say, well, this goes way beyond the job description given to him in the first half of chapter 6. And I would agree, um, with the exception of the qualifications for that job, and that demands of him uh, a character and a walk with God that necessitated the activity that Stephen involved himself in beyond his job description for the church of Jerusalem. Before we look into that, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you once again for your word before us and the opportunity to look into it. And we need your help to really grasp its truth, to humble ourselves before it, to bring it into our very lives and thought processes, and that we might please you and become more like your son, Jesus Christ. We pray for your help this hour in the communication of your word, and then uh, in the hours following as we grapple with what we have heard. That we might be uh, discerning, certainly, but that we might also be uh, surrendered to the authority um, that your word carries over all who call themselves by your name. We pray, it says in Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, Stephen is again in verse 8 described as full of faith. And so we have him full of the Holy Spirit, we have him full of faith, described not once but twice, and the first time is a general statement in verse 5, that he is a man full of faith, In the second usage, it is the application of here's an instance in which his faith took legs and here's how it functioned. So the first time in chapter 5, the the terminology full of faith really speaks about the quality of his Christian walk and life uh, and and more is more characteristic. Uh, When we come to the second usage, it's really talking about uh, and describing his uh, specific activity, that he was engaging himself in this certain way 
and this we cannot lose track of. That we can't describe someone full of faith because uh, they seem to be or because they say they are. We don't walk around and say, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. Oh, you must be full of faith because you believe all these things. That is not the biblical understanding of what it means to have faith. Uh, when confronted with the idea of belief versus faith, um, we have Scripture de- declaring for us that you believe, that's great, so do the demons, and they're afraid. They tremble in belief. So what is it that we're called to in faith? Well, faith, according to Hebrews, of course, moves us to action. It moves us to, to activity. And, and so to say that I believe something and then not follow it up with acts and steps of faith is really empty. It's empty belief. Um, and it's certainly inconsistent to sit there and say, I believe this, but yet I act and do nothing that confirms or substantiates or is an expression of that claimed belief. And this James talks about extensively and this whole perspective on it. You say you believe, but where's the works? Where's the evidence? Where is the proof of your belief system that it is not just mental agreement with information, but that it is really a surrendering of your heart and life to that. And the evidence of that is works. And so by those works, we demonstrate that we have not only believed, but have faith in what we believe. And so there's a lot of people that believe interesting things, and then you look at their lives, and you're like, well, that doesn't agree with all. And so we go to them and say, do you believe that... Uh, that tobacco is a carcinogen and that to smoke those cigarettes is going to be damaging to your health. Yeah, I believe all that. They don't really believe it. Our young people wouldn't, don't really believe that or they wouldn't ever start, right? Because if we had faith in that information to generally put something behind that belief, we would... See evidence in their lives. And in the Christian community, this is a rampant issue that we have all these people making all these declarations of what they believe. I believe this, I believe that. And yet we have no consistency in their life that there's any evidence behind it that this is, any, this is real. And the book of James is lost. In most Bibles today, it seems like, where we have forgotten that if I don't have works... I probably don't have faith, and it doesn't matter what I say I agree with in terms of tenets of doctrine, that without faith, evidenced by works, it's empty. It's void. So this um, full of faith description is going to lead us right into activity of Stephen. And so I want to get to verse 8, but I want to just talk about fullness of faith and fullness of the Holy Spirit. First of all, um, this is not getting more faith, and this is not getting more Holy Spirit. That is not what's being discussed here. Some people have more of the Holy Spirit than I do. Some people have more faith than I do. And that's really not the concept here of fullness. Um, the fullness there is not a matter of getting more of these things, but of surrendering more to these things. 
An example I've used in the past um, is a thermometer, and the old kind, not the digital kind, uh, that they rub across your bow, brow and they look at it. Um, and by the way, have them do that five times in a row and see how many different numbers they get. It's very inconsistent. It's close, but it's inconsistent. So I'm talking about the kind they stick in your mouth or other in other places. Um, and there's a little tube there of, of uh, silver and yeah, thank you. It's silver colored. I know. There's a silvery tube there that fills up. Did you add something to it? the same amount of mercury, you've added one thing to it, and that's heat. But you have not increased the amount of that heavy metal in that tube. And yet, it has filled it up. Especially if you get up those high fevers. And it's filled up the tube. It is not a matter of, do I have more of the Holy Spirit than you? Do I have more faith than you? The, 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 what matters is have we enveloped ourselves in an environment that um, allows the Holy Spirit to expand to his fullest ministry within our lives? Have we engaged ourselves in our belief system to such a degree that faith fills our whole lives or have we repressed it and pushed it into a corner of our life into a closet in the house of of kirk if i pushed it in this closet and there is my faith and here out here i live on a whole different premise and so when we talk about stephen being full of the holy spirit and full of faith it is not that he gained something that no one else had it was a matter that he placed himself and he made himself the environment where the Spirit could expand and, and infiltrate every part of his life, his speech, his attitude, his, his thoughts, that, that faith filled his life, um, not because he had more of it, but because he allowed it to penetrate him to its fullest extent that these things I say must mean something. Or I'm not going to say them. They're either going to take root in my life and just sprout all over me, or I'm not going to claim to believe them. And such an individual was Stephen. And uh, we are called to this kind of walk with the Spirit. We are called to this kind of faith. All believers are. Um, I've taught that faith is a gift of God. I believe it's a universal gift, and I see the evidence of that. Um, among people who place their faith in ridiculous things that challenge us because they're out there walking two by two through your neighborhood living out their belief um, that they're going to become a god. Whatever you want to say about them, they're consistently living out their belief system and for that we could say they are full of faith, probably more full of faith than we are. It's wrongly placed faith. But it has fully captivated their life. They've committed themselves to it to that degree. And so God has granted by His grace the 
capacity of faith in all men. The question is, is it going to expand and fill your life? Or are you going to keep it shut up in a little closet in one corner? Similarly, once you accept Christ as your Savior, you're given a gift of the Holy Spirit. If you do not have the Spirit of God residing in you, you are none of His. You are not Christ. Period. There is no second work of God whereby you get saved at one point and then down the road you receive the Spirit of God. No, that is not what the Bible teaches at all. That if you have received the Spirit of God, you are now a child of God. And we see that evidence. We've already seen that. Uh, we're going to see more of it when we get into uh, uh, the expansion of the gospel here in the book of Acts. We get to Cornelius. We get to the Gentile community. Uh, of course, Philip as well. And we're going to see that expansion into other people groups that's going to shock some Jewish people. But uh, this Spirit of God coming upon you is the is the direct and immediate result of your salvation uh, experience. So we all have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. So again, what makes us full of the Spirit or just with the Spirit? And again, we find some very scary instructions in the Bible. Uh, Thessalonians, do not quench the Spirit of God. That's a little frightening. The idea that I could have the Spirit and I could be dousing Him every day, every hour dousing him, keeping him from consuming me like he wants to with the fire of God that doesn't destroy but purifies. And we keep throwing water on him. Oh, does does the Bible really say, how can we possibly ever live that out in these days? Pastor, you're just unrealistic. You don't know what's out there anymore. Or you're so heavily minded, you're no earthly good. We keep throwing these dousing words on the Holy Spirit and then we wonder why we're lacking the power of the Spirit in our lives. Well, you've shut him up in a closet. You've put a wet blanket over the top of him and 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 he's a, an ember there waiting to burst into flame in your life, but you don't want it to happen. There's a couple of ways to quench a fire. Well, really, they're... Essentially, we talked about the dousing work of throwing water on it, and uh, but the other way is to just remove the fuel. What's to fuel the Spirit of God? Obedience, being God's Word among God's people, all these things are the fuel. And thus the Bible says that the, the, the our Scriptures aren't our sword, it's the Holy Spirit's sword. You want the... Spirit of God to work in you, you have to take up His Word and read it and let it penetrate your heart and life. So we have the Spirit of God and, the, and faith, and now the question is, uh, have I really surrendered to those things? Have I really surrendered to these statements of belief that I've made, or are they just um, over here that I will sign doctoral statements and then I live the rest of my life by the wisdom of men. Stephen was a man whose faith consumed him. Without destroying him, I'm not saying ate him up, 
but it penetrated every part of who he is and what he was involved in. So it was a fullness there. Because he had fully surrendered himself to that. And similarly, he had fully surrendered himself to the Spirit of God. And so it's no surprise when we get to the second description here in verse 8, not only is he full of faith, but he says also in power. And did great wonders and signs among the people. That we have taken full of the Holy Spirit in verse 3, full of the Holy Spirit in verse 5. And now we have transitioned it to say that he is full of power. That there is a working in his life that he is putting it, putting feet to his belief system and God was coming alongside of him in the Spirit of God and, and investing his power in him. And it says great wonders and signs were being done by him among the people. We've seen that largely limited to the apostolic group, but now we see it overflowing into this other group of servants of God's people and the, the many attribute to being the deacons, I just call them the seven. That the seven now are, are endowed similarly And we begin to see that really this is God's desire for all his saints. And we're going to see it happen um, shortly after Stephen's martyrdom. We're going to come to in a couple weeks. So he's out there doing great wonders and signs. But there is a distinction with Stephen. Remember we talked about this last week. That he functions in different circles. The apostles certainly had a powerful ministry. But there was just 12 of them. And they had certain circles that they functioned in and were familiar with. And the evidence was that they didn't have quite so much contact with some of these others. And Stephen, though, had that contact. And so it's no surprise that God now is using him to do some powerful working among... These are Jewish people, but largely Greek-speaking. That is, they're coming from other areas of the Roman Empire... And uh, so Hebrew would not have been necessarily their primary language, but one they would have learned later in their life. Um, and they were coming from, well, it's described for us, four regions, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, uh, people from Cilicia, and, and then we have this um, term Asia. And to us, Asia takes all the way, go all, Asia to them really is referring to Asia Minor, I think, more than anything else, uh, where Paul is going to be spending uh, his first missionary journey. So we find from these four regions, and some say, well, these are four synagogues, or is it one synagogue with these divisions within it? Uh, I don't know if that's critical. But um, Stephen has raised up some opposition in this synagogue. It's within his sphere of influence, which is somewhat intersecting with the sphere of influence of the apostles, but there is one aspect that Stephen seems to have a particular ministry. That is uh, isolated a little bit from that. And he is engaged now in where God is using him and exercising him as kind of the the apostle or the agent of Christ to another uh, group that that functions in different circles and maybe different languages and, and occupations uh, and he encounters opposition. And I want you to notice how isolated Stephen is in this respect. 
all the way through here, you will not find any evidence that there were any of the brethren with him. He is going out there, one man, and he is going to serve God out there. And you're not going to find them carrying up a number of people. Remember, um, how were the apostles arrested so far? There was Peter and John together. And then there was the whole group of them. And we find them functioning as a, as a group. And we find them very seldom isolated. But Stephen is going out there and he's going to a different people group. He's going to a, a different circle of people that, that have limited contact. Certainly on the Temple Mount they would have some contact. Um, but, but outside of that they wouldn't function in any of those synagogues. They had their own synagogue. And Stephen either came out of that synagogue before he became a believer. He certainly had some close contacts there. And so he begins engaging them. They can't resist the power, the evidences, just as the Sanhedrin could not resist the power and working of the apostles, right? We can't. The guy is walking and he didn't used to walk. We can't resist that, right? We have to acknowledge that. Well, well, they couldn't resist the working of Stephen either, nor could they resist the wisdom of his disputation, of this engagement, that he is putting it up not as his work or as something distinct from the Old Testament, but rather a fulfillment of it, that Christ is the, the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of everything we're trying to accomplish as Jews up there on the Temple Mount. It, it's completed in Christ. The Messiah, and we have lots of scripture that we can use to test to that, that there will one day be in, in, a, in one man, the seed of a woman, there will be that one who will fulfill the law. And all the argumentation that we can look at throughout scripture, uh, particularly Hebrews, that we can walk through and, and pull out and see how they develop the Old Testament theology to demonstrate the necessity of the Christ. And that with the coming of the Christ, there, there is a superior relationship and a superior law than anything that Moses had. And so you can, and in fact we're going to see in the next week or two, um, Stephen's message, his, his sermon, his defense of himself before the body who had, uh, the, the ruling body of the Jews who really weren't, this is another different, different group. They've already heard this kind of thing from guys like Peter and John and those kind of fellows. Now they're going to come from a whole other sector of Judaism in Jerusalem are going to bring forth another individual. Before the high priest and before the council. And so it says in verse 10, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And we might say, well, if you can't resist, you have to accept. And that's not true. <laughs> All right? That's just not true. And, and I love apologetics. And, and I'm not going to try to tell you that apologetics are a waste of your time because they aren't. It, it is valuable that we be able to engage ourselves in this kind of activity to, in, to talk to people uh, at a level and, and challenge their presuppositions challenge uh, their conclusions, challenge uh, their belief systems. It's okay to do that and to defend your own. 
And I'm not saying that those are unimportant things. They are worthwhile. But do not anticipate that if you win the argument that you've won the soul. Please understand that. We can win every argument with evolutionists all day long. And we will, that will not equal people coming to Christ in droves. We can put irresistible arguments out there on the existence of God and it will not win atheists. Even if they can't argue it, they, they will simply end up resisting for the fact of resisting because theirs is also a belief system that they have made a commitment to. And so here these men could not resist the spirit nor the wisdom of Stephen. They just, the more he talked, the more he looked right, and the more they looked wrong. The more activity he did in their community, the more it was evident that God was with him differently or or completely differently than what they claimed. And there was every evidence. The evidence was mounting and mounting and mounting and mounting. And they finally just, you think, surrender to it. But they didn't surrender. They could not surrender. Because they did not want to accept Christ. So, what is more commonly the result of good apologetics? More commonly, and again, not 100%, I'm not saying this is how it's always going to end, but the common result of you engaging your friends with irresistible wisdom and the Spirit of God is not going to necessarily be their conversion. More commonly, it will be more like what happens here. They're going to resist to the point of saying, I want you out of my life. We want you out of our community. We want you to be quiet. Remember, the council couldn't resist, and so they, and then Gamaliel gets up and says, you know, if you resist them, and this is of God, you're fighting God, and they says, okay, well, we'll just tell them, shut up, we'll beat you up, get out of here, we're going to leave you alone. These guys didn't have the authority to do that, and so they started a campaign. Let's be honest, that's what this is. This is a campaign to discredit Stephen. And I'm convinced that if you live a consistent walk before your friends and co-workers, and you confront them with a gospel based upon a consistent life, of faith in what you say you believe, spirit-led, with wisdom that they can't dispute, that you will find within your workplace and within your friendships this kind of campaigning to begin a process of discrediting you. And remember, Stephen, from all accounts here, is pretty much isolated. In terms of, he's out there with no backup, okay? He's out there in a community that is somewhat detached from this community where the Christianity has has, has grown and, and sprouted up. 
But out here in the synagogue of the freedmen, who are all really foreigners, come in. Stephen is their Christ. He is their point of contact. One guy is the point man for this synagogue of men. Or four synagogues, if you want to hold to that position. And they start a campaign. We're familiar with it because we've read the Gospels. Verse 11, they secretly induced men to say things. They stirred up the people, elders and scribes. They create a mob. Sound familiar? They're ready for the action by first uh, preparing some false witnesses. Their accusation against him is going to be that he is a blasphemer. Remember, this is a religious community, uh, largely the community that you all are functioning in. It is not religious. Well, it is. They just won't acknowledge that what they are, believe is a religion. But uh, uh, they will not use this kind of terminology, but they will certainly say, well, what you are describing is hate speech. And if you don't think that's real, it is happening right now in our country with great repetition. It is bigotry because we say there's only one way. And we have witnesses set up. Now, when we look at what they are going to say, here's the accusation that come against Stephen. Number one, verse 11, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Moses representing the law, and we're going to see that translated later on into verse 13, um, with Moses being the law and God being the temple. That is the abode of God in the Jewish mind. That's where you meet with God, is on the temple mount. And so, here's what the false witness came forward and said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place, and the law. We have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Now, is that the gospel message? Now, we have not heard Stephen's comments yet. We have not heard his message. We have not heard his his uh, engagement with these people. We have not given the... the uh, content of them. We're going to be given a sense of his teaching uh, in chapter 7. The chapter division here is just ridiculous. I don't know why it's where that is. When we go into chapter 7, we're going to see a full message described and given to us, one of the fullest messages, longest messages that we have in all of Scripture, really, uh, with the exception maybe of the Sermon on the Mount and a few others, um, but certainly among the epistles and uh, uh, and Acts, We have a lengthy description of his message and where it leads. And we have to conclude, this kind of sounds like they might have some truth to this accusation. But what we are teaching is not that the law was bad. Does Paul teach that in Romans, or author of Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, in Galatians? Um, No, we are not saying the law was evil, but rather that it had a purpose, and that purpose was not the deliverance of men, but the condemnation of men. 
And that Christ comes, as he says, to fulfill the law, to complete it, to, to close the book on the law, because now there's going to be a higher law than that, and that's the law of God in our hearts. That no longer we have hearts of stone that God has to chisel away at with the law. We're going to have hearts of flesh that, that the Spirit is going to mold into God's highest law of righteousness and holiness. And so it could I'm sure that Stephen has engaged them like we have engagements in other places here in the New Testament with the fact that, that the law has done its job. It's accomplished and now it's been completed and, and Christ now wants to take you not to leave the law and go off and live sinfully. Oh, no, no, no. He wants you to live higher than just that law into a new relationship with God that is prefaced not on the blood of bulls and goats and the keeping of food laws, but on uh, an intimate relationship with God based upon the blood of the Son, Jesus Christ. So can you see the there's a foundation in our message that, that they're springboarding off of? We have this fundamental truth that uh, we have something better than. It is not in antithesis to the law. It is better than. It is a completion of it. It is not an antithesis to the sacrifices that were back there. It is the fulfillment of them. We don't need them because what they pointed to has occurred. But they have taken this completion message of the gospel and have perverted it. And now they're saying he's against the law and he's against the temple and he's against the sacrifices. And this is their false witness. Is to take a message of hope and deliverance and of godliness and righteousness and twist it. And that's all men have to do. They'll take our message and twist it. And so when we preach against homosexuality, they say we preach against homosexuals not hard, is it? It's not hard to make that twist, is it? Pretty simple. Change a couple of letters. We preach that homosexuality is sin. We preach a lot of other things are sin too. But we also know that God loved all and that all have sinned and that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that God's gift is for all that he loved the world, that he died for all men. And wants all men to come to repentance. And so that sin is a horrible sin. A lot of other horrible sins out there. And God loves all those sinners. So, if you walk out of a message here against homosexuality and you start beating up homosexuals, you haven't listened at all. But you see, the world isn't going to make that distinction. They're going to twist that and say, you just engaged in hate speech because you preached against our activity. 
even though I didn't preach against them. And this is the campaign style of those who can't resist the truth, but can't, can't stand up against it, but yet will not surrender to it. Is that they will set up this kind of a campaign. And so here it comes. And so in addition to this slight twisting of the message, so that now it is seen by men as an attack and as uh, a wicked thing, you're against God, you're against the law, you're against the temple sacrifice, you're against all of this, they also stir up a mob. And mobs are uh, dangerous things. And mobs are fickle things. Mobs are not difficult to develop. They aren't difficult to manipulate. (laughs) People in a mob get carried away into activity that if they had taken just a minute or two and thought through, would have stopped immediately. On their own, none of them would have done it. But together, in an emotional stirring with words that could not be confirmed, with accusations that stir up the heart, what? They want to tear down the temple? They're attacking Moses? Grab him! This is the work of the enemy that has heard the truth, can't resist it, can't can't put up an argument against it, but doesn't want to accept it. The campaign moves from twisting words into stirring up a mob. This is what was done against Christ. And so the first set of men, in verse 11, were induced to speak these words to stir up the mob. These men spoke this accusation to the mass there at the synagogue of the freedmen to stir them up. And then we come to verse 13, and we have another group. They said they set up false witnesses. These men, uh, probably a little more learned, a little more respectable, a little better reputation, and their job was to accuse Stephen before the council. So you have one group of men who are over there in the mob. They're in the crowd. He's against Moses. He's against God. He's against the temple. They're there to stir up people's fervor and convert them from engaging and thoughtful people into a mob. Then we have some other people with a little bit better reputation and a little uh, uh, clout on the council. Speaking essentially the very same accusations, but now it's softened a little bit uh, against the holy place and the law. It's not Moses and God now. It's against this holy place and the law. Uh, Jesus is going to destroy this place. And by the way, um, we're a couple of decades from that happening at this point. Not Jesus destroying it, but the Romans, because they rejected Christ. Jesus did prophesy that in Matthew 24. When you see this, run to the mountains. Now, is Jesus going to destroy 
Jerusalem? Is that what God's prophetic statement is? No. He's going to come and replace it with a new Jerusalem. And change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Not lessen them, but as we said, to go above and beyond them. Although there is an aspect of this that we are going to see the church grapple with uh, when we get to chapters 10 and following, and 11 particularly, of if the law is fulfilled, what is what was the extent of our commitment to it now that we live above it? And so this accusation came, and it is time to confront him. The simple question in verse 1 of chapter 7 is, the high priest says, is this true? Are these things so? Is what they're saying about you the fact? The fact is, is the high priest is also in different circles. And so while the men that have been put forward to give this false accusation are apparently have some cloud in the council, this synagogue is really a very different group of people than the high priest even in his circles. And so he confronts Stephen and not really identifying him until he hears the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is going to do this. And now he says, oh boy, he's one of those. He says, are these things so? But it says that as the whole council sat there, and that would have included many of the high priests, and we finally now have an idea that uh, perhaps Stephen was an aspect of verse 7 when it says that a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Um, Lest you think that that was before this sermon, I want to remind you that uh, chronologically it's just that in the midst of the growing, a lot of priests, and I would contend a lot of the priests came to Christ as a result of Stephen's sermon. And Stephen's testimony, who were there at the council and saw his countenance. This was not a man who was all scrunched up in his face and bitter or angry. This was a man who loved the men who were accusing him. This is a man who wanted to reach his people for Christ. This man was not engaging them just to prove something. He was engaging them, wanting them to turn from their sin and receive Christ as their Savior. This was his ambition. And it was evident on his face and it will be evident in his words that we'll study next week. His message. The spirit of Stephen, one man, who said, no one else knows that group like I know that group. That's my mission field. I'm taking it on. Because it's one thing to sit here in church and say we believe this while we're sitting in Solomon's porch talking to each other. But while we're talking to each other, I remember, you know, there's none of the 
freedmen around here. I'm the only guy. I'm the only one from that place of work or that place of activity or that place of instruction or that place of entertainment or I'm the only one. And this is what it means to be full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit is to recognize that I don't need a church program to do the work God has called me to do, to make a confession of what I say I believe in, that I take it with me. And as he's sitting around on Solomon's porch and seeing the thousands of men, he's realizing, um, you know, there's a whole group over there that really haven't heard what's going on here much. And Stephen says, that's my group. I'm going after them. And one man, filled with the Spirit because he surrendered himself to the Spirit, filled with faith because he surrendered himself to his beliefs and let it penetrate the entirety of his being, said, I'm going to reach them. And he goes out and engages this whole group that seems somehow to be insulated or isolated maybe is a better word, isolated enough that they weren't reached by what the apostolic work was going on. So Stephen becomes the apostle to the freedmen synagogue. And it stirs them up and many, we have to conclude, are going to not only reject and resist and hate, and but many also are going to believe. Stephen's testimony becomes a powerful one. But I want to go back to challenging us. Wherever you're put, and God might have you in a place where you might be the only one. I kind of doubt it, but you might be the point man God has in that workplace, in that neighborhood, in that social environment, you may be the one. In that set of offices, on on that floor of the hospital, in that lab, you may be the one. And what God desires of you is to let Him have control of that environment. First, of the environment of your life, that you might be full of faith and full of spirit, full enough to put legs on what you say you believe and take it with you into a place that maybe no one else can take it in. I can't. The apostles didn't have those contacts at the Freedmen Synagogue. They kind of lived a whole different kind of life. If you don't think that's possible, um, I bet you that's happening all around in this area. If you haven't, you should just kind of walk down in some areas of town and realize that, oh, (laughs) this is a very different kind of community that I'm used to. There are places around Albuquerque that are that isolated. And maybe God wants you to take that work on that Stephen took on. Instead of saying, Pastor, we need to reach them. You need to reach them. We should pray for them as I need to reach them. 
Because God's put me there. I I know them. I know how they think. I know their customs. I know their language. I know their terminology. I know their culture. I know them. And I need to be God's point man there. I need to be Christ to them. I need to bring them the message. And I'm not going to tell you that it's going to all end up wonderful in terms of your health and well-being physically or materially or financially. But I'm going to tell you that it's going to be wonderful in God's sight. Oh, that we would come to our places of work and to our places of residence and our places of social settings and come to there full of faith, full of the Spirit of God. with an irresistible wisdom that is beyond man to engage people with the gospel. Whether they accept or reject isn't really relevant to the task before us. What God measures is our willingness to go forward. I think it's wonderful the fact that Stephen, we don't know anything about his educational background. We don't know much about Where he came from, we know where he went to. (laughs) But we know this, that he let the Holy Spirit work through him. And he put legs to what he said he believed. And that's the only criteria I find here to have this kind of an impact upon not just one synagogue of men, but the whole Jewish community eventually as we'll see next week. Pray that we would have that kind of courage to surrender ourselves that completely to God and to what we say we believe. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Again, we thank you for this individual. An example that he shares for us of what you desire your servants to be. Lord, we know that he was the creme de la creme. He was the the best of the best of the servants. Lord, this is um, what you really want from us. Lord, help us to be counted among those that want to serve you, full of your spirit and wisdom. And help us not to be content with shuffling our feet among the mixed multitude, but of rising in your service to put our faith in action and to be led by your spirit with power and wisdom to your glory. Lord, we confess 
our part in quenching you, in resisting you. And we pray that you might find us rather walking in your Spirit. That you might fill our lives as you desire and have demonstrated a willingness to do. Thank you so much for your Spirit within us. We thank you so much for the truth that you have placed within our hearts and for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has made it all possible. It's in his name we pray. Amen.